welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I am your guest host this week, Kimberly Winston. Science and religion have not always been the most natural partners. In the past, they have clashed frequently and furiously, most notably over the age of the Earth, the Sun's location in the solar system, and in the teaching of evolution. Today, they face off over climate change, vaccine mandates, and gender identity. But a new exhibit at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History hopes to reframe the relationship between science and religion from one of conflict to one of cooperation and mutual insight. This development is also captured in a newly revised book about science and religion that we'll hear about later in the episode. But first, let's walk through the new Smithsonian exhibit called Discovery and Revelation, Religion, Science, and Making Sense of Things, which opened in March of this year. Our tour guide is Dr. Peter Manso, the Lilly Endowment Curator of American Religious History at the National Museum of American History. I asked Dr. Manso to explain the genesis of the exhibit and what it says about Americans, religion, and science. Discovery and Revelation is our second religion-focused exhibit at the National Museum of American History. Uh, the first was Religion in Early America, which ran from 2017 to 2018. For the follow-up, we wanted to have a subject that would appeal to visitors who might not think that they're interested in religion. Uh, we wanted to find a way to show that the subject of American religious history crosses borders of interest and uh, is embedded throughout culture in really fascinating ways, including its intersection with science. We engaged in conversation with both uh, experts in the field and with visitors, and we found that museum visitors, by and large, assumed a certain amount of conflict in this subject of the intersection of religion and science. In talking with experts about the subject, however, we found that there is much more an understanding of the complexity of this interaction, that it is not merely a matter of conflict, but rather it's a matter of mutual influence across time between religious and scientific ideas. So we wanted to take this opportunity with the exhibit to translate some of that scholarly discourse around religion and science, which assumes complexity, and we wanted to communicate that to visitors to the museum, who are 5 million people every year. We wanted to communicate the really fascinating, ongoing interaction of religion and science, informed by the scholarly discourse around it, but not limited by it. When a visitor walks into the exhibit, what do they see? They'll note immediately that the exhibit covers three centuries of American history, the 18th century, 19th century, the 20th century, and up until today. But they'll also see that it's an exhibit organized around big thematic questions, questions that we all have probably asked throughout our lives and that Americans have asked throughout our history. Uh, those questions are, what is our place in the universe? What does it mean to be human? And perhaps most importantly, what do we owe each other? What is the ethical dimension of the intersection of religion and science? We wanted to do this because this subject of religion and science, we, we find that many people assume it's all about abstractions, uh, that it's only uh, about a conflict of ideas. But really, it's about how we move through the world, how we interact with the things we have learned through our educations and also with our ideas about 
the answers to the big questions of the universe and of being alive. So we wanted to show that this isn't something that you need to have a PhD to engage with, but rather the questions raised by the intersection of religion and science are simply about what it means to be human. The exhibit is built around three anchoring images stationed at three different parts of the gallery. Tell me what these images mean and why they were selected. The three anchoring images, which also include some objects, are are connected directly to those questions that I mentioned. So when you enter the gallery at one end, you encounter that question, what is our place in the universe? And you see this beautiful portrait of the planet Earth taken by the Apollo 8 astronauts that for the first time showed Earth from space to a very wide audience. And this was on a mission when the Apollo 8 astronauts happened to be orbiting the moon for the very first time. It fell on Christmas Eve, 1968. And so they decided to mark the occasion by reading aloud from the book of Genesis to what was then the largest broadcast audience ever assembled. As you enter the gallery, you encounter that original footage of ni- from 1968, the Apollo astronauts reading aloud from the first verses of the book of Genesis. The crew of Apollo 8 has a message that we would like to send to you. In the beginning... God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, that it was good, and divided the light from the darkness. What we wanted to do with that moment is show that Even at a point when humanity is beginning to reach the stars, we often fall back on these ancient words to give them some meaning and context, to try to describe something that is beyond our our comprehension. At the other end of the gallery, you encounter the image of a Tibetan Buddhist teacher seated in a meditation stance, and his head is covered with uh, electrodes used in a study to uh, scan the brains of Buddhist monks in meditation, to discover what the influence, what the impact of religious practice has been on the structures of the brain. Can you see what a brain in meditation looks like? What we wanted to do is ground the exhibit in human experience, the global human experience and in the individual human experience. The third of our anchoring images is, as you mentioned, the portrait of Henrietta Lacks, uh, the woman who very famously uh, died of ovarian cancer in the 1950s. And then without her consent, uh, researchers took her cells and were able to determine that they could be endlessly uh, replicated. They were immortal, as they said. And this led to all manner of uh, scientific and medical breakthroughs. Usually her story is told as one simply as part of the history of science. But it's worth noting that her own family, many members of whom uh, are devout Christians, have interpreted the immortality of her of herselves in explicitly religious terms, even going so far as to consider her a kind of angel who, despite her, her physical passing, has remained on earth to help humanity. And this, for us, raised that question of the ethical dimension of the intersection of religion and science. The question of consent and what does it mean to take someone's physical remains uh, without their permission and then to use it, uh, albeit for the greater good, 
Um, but first of all, denying agency to the first person involved in that process. So the way we thought about this uh, movement through the themes in the gallery, going from the global view of the earth to the individual view of the monk in meditation to the interpersonal, the relational view of what does it mean to be in community with each other, we thought that all of these are ways that we encounter the intersection of religion and science. This isn't about things only that happen in houses of worship versus things that happen in laboratories, but rather it's about our daily lives. It's about how we interact with each other and how we make sense of the world. Mm. And it's worth pointing out also that that portrait of Henrietta Lacks is done to my eye sort of in the style of iconography. Oh, yeah, certainly. You really nailed it saying it's it's like an icon. She's wearing a hat, it seems, a large sun hat, mm-hmm. or is it a halo? It has that halo effect. She is holding over her ovaries, the site of her cancer, she is holding her Bible yeah. uh, because she too was a devout Christian. And her Bible is one of the few objects that the family continues to have making that personal connection to her. And in between the images are objects that shed light on the big questions and the issues uh, about science and religion. There's, uh, you have the Jefferson Bible. It's a New Testament that Jefferson took a scissors to and cut out all the miracles and the supernatural events. Uh, There's a Benjamin Franklin lightning rod, which um, helped dispel the idea of thunder and lightning as expressions of God's anger. And you have a handwritten letter by Galileo from his imprisonment for saying the earth revolves around the sun. How did you choose what objects to include in the exhibit? We wanted to show the way that the questions raised by the intersection of religion and science resonate across time. And so one of the earliest stories we tell is the story of a smallpox epidemic Mm -hmm. in Puritan Boston in 1721. Many community leaders believe that all you could do in the face of an epidemic was to pray. Uh, if God had sent you this affliction, all you could do was discover what you had done wrong to warrant it and then to to make amends in some way. Uh, and yet there was at the time a fairly new medical practice known as at the time as variolation. It becomes known as inoculation later um, and, and vaccination still later on. It was becoming known through European medical journals, but also through the experiences of the enslaved community of New England. Uh, Many of the African-born men and women who were brought to North America had been inoculated against smallpox in their youth. And so when the smallpox epidemic was raging through Boston, a Puritan minister by the name of Cotton Mather, the most prominent minister of his day in Boston, learned from an enslaved man in his own home, a man called Onesimus, of this practice to treat smallpox. Mather uh, did his research, considered himself as much uh, as a man man of science as a man of faith, and he began to advocate for the use of inoculation to treat smallpox in Boston. His fellow ministers thought that Mather was uh, going against the will of God by Mm. proposing that, that humanity could could intervene and solve something that usually prayer would be used to address. Uh, And so ultimately, inoculation came to be seen as a gift from God rather than a challenge to God's will. We realized that this first story we tell in the exhibit speaks directly to our experience now and to the involvement of religious voices 
for and against vaccination and the complications that arise when religious authorities and scientific authorities aren't necessarily always in agreement. Mm. What is there, if anything, that is distinctly American about the way religion and science rub up against each other in this country? Does it tell you anything about us as a people? There does seem to be something specifically American about uh, the way religion and science have interacted in the way that we talk about the, the religion and science discourse. This has been a place for the past five centuries, uh, America broadly speaking, uh, that has been full of all types of cultures and ideas and ways of knowing constantly bumping into each other and reshaping each other through this process of mutual influence. Thinking about the American context specifically, it allows us a much broader understanding of what religion and science look like in their interaction, uh, incorporating understandings of indigenous knowledge and the way in which that science, that way of knowing and, and being in the world, uh, contributed to Europeans' ability to uh, survive in this place at all. So the challenge of that type of story in a museum setting is finding objects that can be used to tell it. And that has also been the great joy of this exhibit, mm. to, to help visitors understand the really concrete nature of the interaction, that it's not simply about ideas, but it is about the, the things that we uh, interact with in our, in our lives. Mm. What's your personal favorite thing in the exhibit? I think I am most delighted by uh, this object that is popularly known as the Footprints of Noah's Raven. And this is a set of bird-like dinosaur tracks discovered early in the 19th century in New England. And the popular understanding of this set of fossilized tracks at the time was that they were so ancient that they must be the footprints of Noah's raven. Uh, following the biblical story of after the flood, when Noah is, is floating on the ark with all the animals, mm -hmm. eventually he sends birds out to see if the waters have receded, mm -hmm. if, if there's land. And so the footprints of Noah's raven are, are so called because of the understanding that Noah's ravens landed in the mud and left these tracks, which were then discovered in New England early in, in the 19th century. So I, I just find that a delightful popular understanding that has been uh, captured in literally in this, in this slab of stone. Mm. But the interesting thing about it is that it's connected to the work of uh, Edward and Ora Hitchcock. Edward Hitchcock was a theologian and geologist who uh, taught at Amherst College in Massachusetts. His wife, Ora, was an illustrator and painter who would make beautiful renderings of fossilized creatures and land formations for his, for his geological lectures. And they were among those who, at this time in American history, were actively trying to shape religious understanding according to this uh, exploding understanding in the, in the sciences. And so at a time when geologists were realizing, oh, the earth is not thousands of years old, as the biblical creationists might have said, but millions of years old, they would try to incorporate that idea into their understanding of scripture. Mm -hmm. So these are among the first who would read from the book of Genesis and see seven days of creation and think, oh, well, each day, each biblical day mentioned here must truly mean 
tens of millions of years. Mm. And, and so it's a fascinating moment of, of religious tradition actively seeking to adapt itself to new scientific understanding. And that's all captured to me in that one sort of whimsical object mm. of the footprints of Noah's raven. We've been talking with Dr. Peter Manso, curator of American religious history at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. The exhibit called Discovery and Revelation, Religion, Science, and Making Sense of Things is on display through March 2023. When we come back, we'll explore some of the changes in the dance between science and religion with some academic consultants to the exhibit. Stay with us. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. <laughs> 